Uh, thank you, Dave, and uh, good evening, everyone, and uh, good evening, everyone on Zoom, too. Uh, sorry about the delay. We, uh, we, uh, it was not anticipated, so we had to uh, scramble just a little bit here. Um, and so that's why we're running late a little bit. So thank you for, uh, uh, for your patience. Um, so yes, so tonight we're looking at two Psalms. Psalm 32 and 51. And there's a reason we're looking at two Psalms tonight. Uh, we do have historical context for Psalm 51, uh, the, the context it was written in, but we do not have any for Psalm 32. Uh, despite this lack of information, uh, commentators generally agree that Psalm 32 is a companion Psalm to Psalm 31. Psalm 50, uh, sorry, Psalm 51. Psalm, Psalm 51 describes uh, David's confession and repentance after Nathan the prophet confronted him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Even though um, Psalm 32 contains elements of confession and repentance and fits in with Psalm 51, it's not officially recorded David wrote it because of a Bathsheba incident. Uh, the point is we don't really know. Uh, what we do have for Psalm 32 is the label maskil, which is the Hebrew word for contemplation. It is one of 12 Psalms with its label, and it means to contemplate, to meditate on these Psalms. Uh, we see that by the repetition of Selah, uh, which is like a pause, um, three times in the middle of 11 verses in Psalm 32. So it's basically a pause to reflect on what was just read. Uh, in the big picture, when, when we look at Psalm 51, uh, we have David confessing and asking God's forgiveness for his sin and failure. While in Psalm 32, he's rejoicing in knowing that God has forgiven him for his confessed sin. So considering this, uh, it seems more appropriate that we'll start with Psalm, 50, Psalm 51 first. Psalm 51 is uh, known as a prayer of repentance. So he goes, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash, wash me thoroughly from my inequity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in inequity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. 
And as I read this story again in 2 Samuel, it made me wonder, how many of the Ten Commandments did David break here? If we look at the commandments, uh, one observes that the first four relate to God, and the remaining six relate to another human being. One could say David broke five, if not all six of them, that affected another person. He coveted his, he covet, coveted, sorry, he coveted his neighbor's wife. He committed adultery. He bore false witness. He murdered and he stole, he stole another man's wife. And the last one, which is perhaps more subtle, a person who commits all these sins do not honor their mother and father. So moving on to the next verse, David says, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And so he acknowledges his transgressions when he understood what he has done and takes full responsibility for his sin and how the sin weighed on him when he says his sin is always before him. Goes on to the next verse to say against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Interesting verse on the first reading of it. One stops and wonders, well, how about Bathsheba, Uriah, the husband, David's commanders who were forced to carry out Uriah's murder, his kingdom. David had betrayed every one of them by what he did. But if we look at the next verse, he says that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. In the context of who God is, he is the ultimate judge who executes, executes judgment, judgment on sin. David will never get away from any sin from God because God knows and sees everything. We may succeed at fooling people, but we'll never fool God. Next verse, he goes on to say, behold, I was brought forth in inequity and in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and the hidden part in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. David recognizes he was born in inequity and sin because he was born with a sinful nature. It doesn't mean he was born out of a sinful relationship. He understood he could not escape sin because it was part of his human nature. He understood what Paul so clearly writes later in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. So even though the sin nature was deeply rooted in David. He knew God wanted to work the truth in him to his inner core, to the hidden part, which is his spiritual being, to know wisdom, godly wisdom. And so now David moves on. He wants to be restored from his sin. The next verse is, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, wash me, and I shall be whiter than, than snow. David pleads for God to purge and wash away his sins until he be, could, could be whiter than snow. Figuratively speaking, of course, 
He wants to be as clean as white as can be. Again, it's a metaphor. We could never be as white as snow. But snow in its purest form is the most beautiful white. I always appreciate how beautiful snow falls. Uh, sorry, I always appreciate how beautiful snowfall is and how white and clean snow is. Uh, of course, when it falls on the road, it eventually becomes a sturdy slush, no longer clean and beautiful, which is another metaphor of what sin can do. David also asks God to purge him with hyssop, a physical plant, even though he, wasn't, he was not physically unclean. But David understood the hyssop had purification properties. This goes back to when priests use hyssop to sprinkle purifying water on the unclean, as it was recorded in the book of Numbers. So verse 8, David goes on to say, Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my inequities. David no longer wanted to be a broken man from his sins, but rather be glad and joyful. He wanted God to no longer see his sins, that they were blotted out from God. Which uh, kind of reminds me of the old days when, when we used this liquid white paint on a little brush to blot out mistakes on, on, on the white paper so, so the, the mistake wouldn't really show. Well, sinful mistakes in life are not on paper, though. Only the blood of Jesus can blot out these mistakes. His blood is the greatest, is the greatest purifier there is because it removes the stain of sin. That makes us white and pure again. Moving on to verse 10, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David now is asking God for a clean heart, to create in him a new one, not simply clean up his old sinful heart. He wanted a new one, not something that was fixed up. Consequently, a new spirit in him, steadfast in the pursuit of God. Verse 11, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David needed God to, 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 get, to, to, to renew, to have this new heart. So he pleads with God not to cast him away and take his Holy Spirit away from him. In other words, for God not to abandon him. Verse 12, he says, Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Again, David expresses his joy to being saved from his sins, restored to God's salvation and having God's Holy, Holy Spirit upon him to uphold, keep him steadfast in his godly walk. And he emphasizes this walk by the generosity of the Spirit. <clears throat> then he goes on to say, verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Having been made right with God, David now had the moral and spiritual author authority to teach those who were walking in the ways of sin. 
transgressors just like he was, to show them God's ways and bring them to repentance as well, to become godly people. Quite often, the most effective teachers are those who have gone through the same experience as those they're trying to teach. And that was David's case in this case. Then he says in verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall, shall, shall show forth your praise. This is the one time David mentions bloodshed in the psalm. Of course, he's referring to his premeditated murder of Uriah, as this specific guilt must have weighed on him. The worst crime a person can commit in God's eyes is murder. And even more so if it was premeditated to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. Finally, David wraps up the psalm by asking God to restore his goodness to his kingdom, to bless it because David understood as king, his king could have suffered for the consequences of his sin. He was God's anointed after all. It is not so different today when nations and people suffer because their political leaders have made bad decisions. So David asked that his kingdom be restored and blessed as well not just the man David. Then sacrifices can be offered again in righteousness because his heart has been made right with God. And that, those are pretty much my thoughts for Psalm 51. And, and just to conclude, um, we have David, the shepherd boy, chosen by God to be king. The shepherd boy who slayed probably the greatest warrior of his time, Goliath who eventually wrote many, many psalms, writing we consider to be God's inspired, uh, God's inspired word. Seen as the greatest king of Israel, the ancestral line of our Lord, and a man described by God himself as a man after his own heart. Despite all these great qualities, David failed, because we all fall, fall short of the glory of God. And so that's, that's it for Psalm 51. We'll, uh, we'll move on to Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 is uh, titled, The Joy of Forgiveness. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute inequity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my inequity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the inequity of my sin. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. 
Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and brittle, and else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Okay, so Psalm 32, uh, first verse right away. Blessed is he who, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Right away, David starts with the blessing of being forgiven, whose sin has been blotted out. To be blessed, it is a favor. It's God's favor. It's God's grace. David didn't earn his way to forgiveness, but instead relied on his penitence for God to forgive him. David was also blessed in many other ways and recognized how God had blessed him, which he wrote into many of his Psalms. Next verse, he goes on to say, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute inequity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David recognizes that it is God who forgave him. It is the Lord who does not impute inequity, and again, how he feels blessed. That his trans transgressions, sin, and inequity have been taken care of by God. And blessed to know he's no longer a deceitful man, which is what Psalm 51 was all about, how he had deceived so many for his own personal gain. Next verse, he says, When I kept silent, my, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was, hand, uh, sorry, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turning to the drought of summer. David in the verse, verses 3 and 4 now switches his perspective. He now describes the burden and guilt of not confessing his sin. His conscience affected him to the point he felt like an old man, groaning, feeling the anguish of his predicament all day long. He felt God's hand, we could say God's spirit, heavy upon him, convicting him of his wrongdoing. And so much so that it felt like a drought, dry and dead. So then he says, verse 5, I, I acknowledge my sin to you and my inequity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the inequity of my sin. David realizes the only way out of his predicament, he describes in verses 3 and 4, is to acknowledge his sin to God. Do not hide his inequity. Of course, when it comes to hiding our inequity from God, we can. God knows and sees everything. But David realizes he can no longer cover up his sin. He had to admit it, and in the context of Psalm 51, this makes sense, he had to come clean after his adultery with Bathsheba. So David confessed his sin to God, and God restored him and forgave the inequity of his sin. Uh, to quote 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Now moving on to verse 6, David says, For this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. David, after coming clean, now focuses on the positive of having done that. He no longer sees the sinful man in him, but the God, godly man who will pray and find God. The truth, though, is God's always there, but we're not always seeking him. And then when he finds God, God will become his shelter, his protection, and deliver him. He won't get into sinful trouble. The flood of great waters will not come near him. Sin will no longer drown him as a metaphor. So verse 8, now God is speaking. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and brittle, else they will not come near you. David continues on, on the positive of having come clean and found God. Not only God protects him, but now God instructs and teaches him where he should go in godly wisdom. God who keeps an eye on him to guide him in discerning the way he should go. But God also gives David a warning to not become like the horse or the mule, meaning David ought to pay attention and keep his focus on God so not to sever that relationship again, having come clean to remain that way. The horse and the mule need the bit and brittle because they don't guide themselves easily. They constantly need correction. God didn't want to have to continually correcting David, meaning he, couldn't, he could not continue on committing the same sins. Because David has understanding, so does everyone, because we're all made in the image of God. We're not like the mule or the horse. Then moving on to the last two verses of the Psalm 32. Uh, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. You righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David concludes his psalm by contrasting the sorrows he experienced when he sinned and tried to cover it up. He compares it to now the repentant David, who's experiencing God's mercy because he has trusted the Lord in his, forgive in his forgiveness when he confessed his sins. Instead of the sorrows, guilt, and burden of his sins that weighed on him, he's now glad, joyful, rejoicing in his restored fellowship with God. Knowing he's been redeemed, made right with God, so much so, so, much so that he shouted with joy. And that's the end of Psalm 32. Uh, but just a couple more comments on Psalm 32. So Paul later quotes Psalm 32. 
uh, verse 1 and 2 specifically in Romans 4. A passage that reaffirms that we've made we've been made righteous by faith. Or we're made righteous by faith. Verse 5 in Romans 4 says, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David, who described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And this is a quote. Uh, Blessed are those who, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And in the context of the New Testament, just like Abraham's faith was accounted to him as righteousness, our faith in Jesus is accounted to us as righteousness as well, as we continue just with uh, Romans 4 still. Uh, just a couple of verses, verse 23 and, and, and on. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. And that's uh, the end of uh, my message tonight. Thank you.